good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and I'm always glad that you have joined us. Looking at the state of our political environment here in America, it might seem like things have never been more intense or chaotic. And while in many respects we are living in unprecedented times, our nation's history is one in many ways defined by rolling with the punches of unexpected upheaval. That's where we want to start the conversation today, by looking back at eight specific points in our nation's past when the vice president had to assume the highest office in the land. And in many ways, it feels especially relevant considering the advanced age of both presidential candidates Donald Trump and Joe Biden. To explore our nation's history around these so-called accidental presidents is Jared Cohen, the author of a book with that very title. Jared, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So first thing is the title of your book, Accidental Presidents, that title in the context of our world where voter suppression and fear-mongering around election fraud is part of the collective consciousness. Do people often assume this is a book about current events rather than the past? That's right, and I suppose it suggests that history has caught up with us a little bit. But I started writing this book uh, roughly seven years ago. It was a childhood passion. I was My parents had bought me one of those children's books about the presidents, and as an eight-year-old, I zeroed in on the fact that eight presidents had, had died in office. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big difference between – what I tell people is there's a big difference between an unexpected president, which Trump certainly is, and an accidental president, which is a vice president who becomes president upon the death of their predecessor. Yeah, yeah. Um, your book provides insight into the eight men, of course, who came to the office without being elected at least the first time. Let's talk about the, the, the eight, who they are first. Yeah, of course. So you had, you had William Henry Harrison die after just 30 days in office. So John Tyler became uh, the nation's first accidental president. Uh, then when Zachary Taylor dies, Millard Fillmore becomes an accidental president. Andrew Johnson changes the course of history uh, upon Lincoln's assassination. Chester Arthur upon James Garfield's uh, assassination. Theodore Roosevelt um, rose even more like a rocket after McKinley's assassination. Um, you know, of course, Calvin Coolidge after Warren Harding. Uh, of course, Harry Truman after FDR and LBJ after John F. Kennedy. Yeah. So let's start with with Tyler and that very first time that a president dies and the vice president uh, becomes president, it seems like that would have been a, a startling occurrence uh, to uh, a pretty young American citizenry. So what's extraordinary to me about uh, the narrative or the history of accidental presidents in America is as much as the framers of the Constitution thought of a lot of things, they really winged it when it came to presidential succession. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't want a vice president in the first place. It was, a, it was a last minute afterthought, and they used it as an electoral mechanism to figure out what to do with the person who got the second largest number of votes in, right. in, uh, in the Electoral College. Um, and so what's extraordinary is when William Henry Harrison dropped dead after just 30 days in office, um, the Constitution's not clear about whether John Tyler is an acting president or becomes the president. And there's a real showdown. And John Tyler is basically the only person who thinks that he's president. Um, and he races back after spending 30 days in exile 
uh, you know, uh, sort of self-exile as, as an irrelevant vice president to have a showdown with his cabinet and a showdown with, with Congress. And what's extraordinary is after several months, he, he wins that showdown with the caveat that his enemies and his adversaries called him the great usurper and his accident, his accidency, and would deliberately address <laughs> mail to him as John Tyler, vice president, acting as president. But the precedent that he set in April of 1841 is responsible for making seven more presidents the president. That precedent is not formalized until you have the 25th Amendment uh, ratified in 1967. So we forget that Lyndon Johnson becomes the president as opposed to an acting president mm-hmm. um, you know, in 1963 based on a precedent set by John Tyler in April of 1841. Wow, wow. Uh, the... the uh the, the next kind of really interesting one to me on the list is Johnson. The first one, we've had two presidents, Johnson. Uh, the first, uh, a complete catastrophe uh, in office. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, him? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. When people ask me, you know, how dramatically was the course of our history changed by eight men accidentally rising to the presidency, I say, look, we, we winged it and we more or less got away with it, except for one caveat, which is, which is Andrew Johnson, right? The, the rest of them were kind of a mixed bag, some better than others. Um, some proved to be non-entities. But in the case of Andrew Johnson, we were supposed to get Abraham Lincoln's vision for reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, what you end up with is a president at the tail end of the Civil War presiding over reconstruction, who was born a racist, died a racist, the last president to own slaves, who essentially delegated civil rights to the states who gave amnesty to all the Southern traders um, and was responsible for the emergence of the Black Codes, which were the precursor to the Jim Crow laws, which are their more sort of formal manifestation uh, following the election of 1876. Yeah, yeah. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is, I think, one of the biggest names on this on this list. He becomes an icon as president. He was kind of an icon before as a war hero. Uh, talk about his ascendancy to the executive. So first of all, when we talk about the phrase heartbeat away from the presidency, um, it first gets introduced in the context of Theodore Roosevelt, mm-hmm. because the New York party bosses were so tired of him that they wanted to exile him to the political equivalent of Elba. So where better to do that than the vice presidency? And it was you know, some of the big business backers of William McKinley who said, don't you understand that this madman is a, is a heartbeat away from the, from the presidency? And it's astonishing that we, we still, after you know, two assassinations that came before um, and two presidents who died of illness, we still weren't treating the vice president as somebody who could become president. And when William McKinley is assassinated and then subsequently dies in September of 1901, Theodore Roosevelt has the most shocking reaction of any of the accidental presidents. You know, the, the, the playbook is to be mournful and revere the predecessor. And instead, Theodore Roosevelt, when he's asked about it, he says, it's a terrible thing to come into the presidency this way, but it would be far worse to be morbid about it. Mm. And then he just kind of gets on with it. And, and, you know, McKinley's legacy evaporates pretty quickly. And Theodore Roosevelt ushers in an era of progressivism that probably would not have been possible um, you know, by election, um, at least in 1900. And of course, he goes on to be the first accidental president to be elected in his own right in right. 1904. Yeah. You know, there's something about that particular dynamic with Roosevelt that's very interesting, which is uh, if, if you're the vice president and the president dies for some reason you and you become the president, 
is the, is there a, a natural expectation that it's not your presidency that uh, you're there to carry out the rest of the term that that president would have uh, would have carried out and and therefore not uh, radically depart from from that agenda uh, Roosevelt of course goes in a really different direction uh, than McKinley would have well what's interesting is they all do right so 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 basically with the exception of Calvin Coolidge all of the accidental presidents take the country in a very different direction from their predecessors. Some of them start wars, some of them end wars, some of them accelerate racial and social progress, some of them significantly set it back. Um, in the case of Millard Fillmore, when Zachary Taylor dies in, um, in 1850, um, the first thing that Fillmore does is he sacks the entire cabinet. Um, and then the Congress goes into a lame duck session and he ends up without anybody in charge of any of the departments and agencies. And he, he, he resorts to kind of begging some of them to, to stay on for another three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which of these uh, men, these eight men, is the most fascinating to you? I mean, as, as a figure, Theodore Roosevelt is the most fascinating. As an accidental president, Harry Truman ends up being the most interesting mm -hmm. because, you know, we, we, we forget how reckless a choice Harry Truman was in, in the context of 1944. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Democratic Party bosses all knew FDR was a dying man. Nobody talked about it. Nobody admitted it, but everybody knew it. And they couldn't fathom the idea of the incumbent vice president, Henry Wallace, becoming president. They thought he was way too liberal um, and he was you know, too friendly towards the Soviet Union. And so the, 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 the sort of the least offensive of the other options or the safest of the other options was this kind of aw shucks provincial politician from Missouri named Harry Truman. So Truman gets, you know, thrown onto the, the, the ticket. And by the way, at the 1944 convention, um, when they take a verbal vote, um, Henry Wallace actually wins the nomination. Uh, but because it was a verbal vote, the party bosses, they swung open the doors at the convention hall in Chicago and declared a fire hazard. And they did this while the organ player was playing the theme song from Wallace's home state of Iowa. Uh -huh. And they had one of the, these poor campaign staffers take an ax off the wall and start chopping the organ pipes to try to set things back. <laughs> uh, but Truman with extraordinary Truman, um, in his 82 days as vice president, he only meets FDR twice. He does not get a single intelligence briefing, doesn't meet a single foreign leader, never steps foot in the map room where the war is being, where the war is being planned. Um, you know, he's not read into to the big conference at Yalta with, with Stalin and, and, and Churchill. Um, and so he's basically out gallivanting and, and socializing. Mm -hmm. And when FDR dies on April 12, 1945, um, and Eleanor Roosevelt you know, tells Truman, Harry, the president is dead. Truman responds to her and says, is there anything I can do for you? And, and Eleanor says to him, no, is there anything I can do for you? For you're the one in trouble now. Yeah, right. And he really was in trouble. At the moment that Harry Truman took the oath of office, the Battle of Okinawa was raging, the fiercest military battle in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Stalin was reneging on all of his promises to FDR um, at, at, at Yalta. A bureaucratic battle threatened the dynamic between the Army and Navy. You know, Truman had just been briefed on uh, a potentially destructive weapon that may or may not work, the atomic bomb. Um, and they faced the prospect of having to potentially move a million men from the European theater to the Asian Pacific front. Um, and he doesn't even know where the countries are on a map. The, the, the new president spends you know, the first five days in the map room just getting caught up to speed on what's happened since the war started. Hmm. And, of course, he is confronted with this monumental choice, which in some ways is the most important choice that any American president ever has to make, and that's the whether to use this new technology 
the nuclear bomb to end to end a war, and of course he does, and it changes changes the course of history in a many in many ways. Yeah, that, that that's precisely right, and I think what's interesting, and I think what I find extraordinary about Harry Truman is how a man so ill-prepared for the presidency could prove so decisive and make so many of the right decisions. I mean, he basically ended the war, set the course for the post-world uh, world order, and he made some bold moves like desegregating the army. We forget mm-hmm. that, that a big part of the reason he nearly lost uh, his bid for, for election in his own right in 1948 was his decision to desegregate the army you know, triggered a segregationist flank of um, the Democratic Party to break off and run for president under Strom Thurmond. Yes, yes. We're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jared Cohen, author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. Stay with us on Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Jared Cohen, founder and CEO of the technology incubator Jigsaw, formerly Google Ideas at Alphabet Inc. He also serves as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and is the author of the New York Times bestselling uh, Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. That is what we are talking with Jared about. Uh, let's talk more about uh, Lyndon Johnson, who is another towering figure uh, on this list uh, and somebody who inherits uh, a number of problems from uh, the president who was uh, his he, that he who was elected uh, before him uh, and and handles them in a, a very different way. Uh, Lyndon Johnson looks at civil rights. Uh, and and goes a different path than the than the Kennedy administration did, uh, and of course Vietnam uh, becomes a huge part of his legacy. Yeah, that, that, that's precisely right. I think that that you know what's interesting about LBJ is he showed tremendous courage and boldness when it came to domestic issues, a set of issues that he understood, which is why he makes you know a set of decisions on on, on civil rights that that surprised the people who who knew him. But he really struggled um, to demonstrate the same level of courage on foreign policy. And it's painful. I would stay up when I was writing Accidental Presidents. I would stay up late falling asleep to the Lyndon Johnson tapes. And, and it's painful listening to these because at every step of the way on Vietnam, he knows he's making the wrong decision. He says he's making the wrong decision. He tells his advisors he's making the wrong decision. But he's so concerned that Vietnam is going to blow up on his watch and that it's going to get hung around his neck like a noose and destroy his, his, his political career and his legacy. And so he just can't, he, he doesn't have the same self-assuredness and the same confidence to challenge what he's being told and go with his instincts. With civil rights, he had the same concern. He, 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 he understood the issues. He understood um, that the country was a powder keg, and he understood that he was going to be left um, you know, with the consequences if he didn't do something about it, and he knew how to do something about it. Now, I argue in the book that I do not believe that Kennedy would have been able to get um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, passed, um, and I don't believe that the will was sufficient to get it passed before the election. I think that Kennedy wanted to pay lip service to civil rights enough to win 
the election and was prepared to tackle it after winning re-election, but I don't believe he would have taken that gamble prior to the 1964 election. Um, what's extraordinary about Lyndon Johnson is you needed somebody like him with that kind of Texas drawl who looked the part of a Southern segregationist and had the track record to go with it um, in order to get this done. It was a sign that you know, history was was tilting in a different direction. Yeah. Well, and of course, uh, Lyndon Johnson's extensive experience and knowledge of the Senate in particular, but but Congress made him a better tactician, I think, uh, with regard to getting those kinds of things done uh, than, than, than John Kennedy. I mean, uh, he was a creature of the legislative branch far more, I think, uh, than than ever kind of a chief executive. He was a creature of the legislative branch and really underutilized by the Kennedy administration. In fact, I argue in the book that I believe that Johnson was, in, was within weeks of getting kicked off the ticket uh, in the 1964 election because he was embroiled in a scandal involving one of his Senate aides. Um, and the whole thing was about to blow up. And, and through my interviews with some of the journalists who are still alive, I found that um, you know, uh, some of the news outlets had the goods and the dossier on Johnson, and they were ready to go public with it the, the following week. Um, and then when Kennedy was assassinated, they decided the country had been through such an, you know, a, a jaw-dropping moment and transition that the media made the decision to self-censor um, and not go public with this. Because imagine this, you, had, you would have had the president assassinated, and then um, the new president, you know, likely forced to resign as a result of this scandal. And what is interesting about the Tyler precedent that I referred to before that set the precedent that the vice president becomes president, um, the, they had never experienced a double vacancy in the presidency and the vice presidency. And the Constitution was very clear um, that if there's a double vacancy, um, that it's filled with an acting president, who in, in this case, um, you know, would have been the, the, um, the Speaker of the House. Um, and so what's fascinating is until the 25th Amendment in 1967, there's no constitutional provision for replacing the Vice President of the United States. So right. you have eight accidental presidents who became president when their predecessor died, but in all eight cases, the Vice Presidency was left vacant. Now, what's interesting is six of those eight accidental presidents themselves nearly died in office. Mm. So uh, let's talk about uh, the things that we can draw from these eight instances in U.S. history where a vice president becomes president uh, in, in 2020, when it, it does seem that we are in a, a, a very critical time with a lot of critical choices uh, in, in front of us. And a, a lot of these uh, eight men took over uh, the country at at critical times with critical choices uh, in front of them. Are, are there lessons for us today from all of these instances? I think there's a lot of lessons from, from history to draw on. I would say that the, the, the good news and the silver lining is today's vice presidents are much more integrated into the administration. Mm -hmm. um, so the historic problem of a vice president ascending to the presidency and having been out of the loop is less of an issue. It seems that each successive vice president is the most powerful and informed and active vice president in history with a, with a robust portfolio. But... Um, you know, I think it's, a, it's still a cautionary tale in the context of elections, which is vice presidents are still chosen as a political marriage of convenience to win a state, appeal to a particular demographic, and not based on a policy alignment or chemistry necessarily between mm -hmm. a president and a vice president. So, you know, if you look at, you know, the two potential vice presidents, 
um, you know, in this in this next election, Mike Pence um, and and Kamala Harris, um, we shouldn't assume that just because they get along with the person at the top of the ticket, and in Pence's case, just because he's integrated with the administration, that if either are elevated to the presidency, they'll follow the policies perfectly of their predecessor. All history suggests that uh, vice presidents, when elevated to the presidency, um, you know, they give a nod to their predecessor, but they make decisions and kind of own it as their own administration. There's not a lot of predecessor worship um, that, that, um, that we've seen historically. Yeah. And it also seems to me that the conversation around a potential Joe Biden presidency is more influenced by the thought that his vice presidential pick could end up being president than any other time I can can remember where uh, where that becomes part of the campaign narrative, even if it's in the background, this idea that his age suggests that he might not be able to serve that uh, full four years. Yeah, I think it's the case in, 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 with, with both candidates. I mean, mm-hmm. so we're in an unprecedented moment that's really testing presidential mortality, right? So we, we currently have the oldest president in the history of the republic. Mm-hmm. Regardless of who wins the next election, um, they will be the oldest president ever elected. Um, if Joe Biden wins the election, he'll be the country's first octogenarian president. Uh, most ex-presidents, by the way, did not live to, to, to even, you know, you know, see their 80th right. birthday. Um, you know, we, we have a somewhat distorted view because of George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter and their, and their longevity, but, but most ex-presidents died before their, their 80th birthday. Um, and then there's a real, you know, there, there, there's a real question. Um, you could imagine a situation, by the way, which would be, you know, unprecedented, where, you know, towards the end of an administration, um, you know, uh, whoever is president decides to resign the presidency to elevate um, their vice president, you know, as a as a way to kind of exert agency over who their successor is. Um, you can imagine how controversial something like that would be because it would be seen as anointing a president as opposed to going through a democratic process. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask you about uh, our own Gerald Ford, a, a Michigander who went on to be president because the president resigned. It's a very different set of circumstances, but why not include him in the book? So I get asked this this question a lot, and the the reason I chose to focus on the eight who died in office is the sense of deprival of what the voters wanted um, and the abruptness of it. In in Nixon's case, his resignation was man-made. And yes, in many respects, Ford was an an accidental vice president as well. Um, um, And and, and so in that sense, he was an accidental president, but, but he wasn't thrust into the presidency with the sort of abruptness that comes with a presidential death in office or assassination. Um, I do talk about Ford in the book, yes. um, and I give I, I, I go into um, his presidency in, in a bit of detail and include extensive interviews with you know Henry Kissinger and George H W Bush and 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 Dick Cheney. And what's interesting about Ford is that when the Twenty Fifth Amendment is ratified again the amendment that that formalizes that the vice president becomes uh president the first time it's put in practice is actually to pluck gerald ford out of michigan's fifth district to become vice president right uh right. when, when spiriti agnew resigns the other thing that's interesting about ford is um 
he ends up nearly being killed after being elevated to the presidency twice within 35 days. Yes. Um, you know, um, you know he, he has two separate women take shots at him. Um, and um, so, again, he's, you know, he, he's one of those um, men unexpectedly thrust into the, into the presidency who themselves nearly dies as president. Now, now, of course, in his case, there was a 25th Amendment. Um, so the, um, the, the clarity on what to do was already, was already pronounced. Yeah. But, but it, it, and I get what you're saying about the difference in circumstances, uh, but the, the upheaval of the moment. Uh, I think parallels some of these other uh, instances when uh, when President Nixon resigns. Uh, we're in an, in a terrible constitutional crisis. Uh, Ford has to make some pretty tough decisions about that crisis. Uh, arguably, the decisions he makes helps him lose the 1976 election uh, to Jimmy Carter. There's there's kind of a lot of similarity there. Yeah, there 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 is a lot of similarity there, and I think the difference with Ford versus the eight accidental presidents I write about is the predecessor is still alive. Yes. And the yes. predecessor is still lingering, right? So the question you ask yourself is, you know, if, you know, you know, you know when Ford makes the decision to pardon Nixon, um, it's hard to imagine he's not making that decision with, you know, the sort of the, the, the shadow and the, the emotional presence of Richard Nixon lingering there. And who knows what kind of private conversations um, they had. When, when the predecessor is not there anymore, it's much easier for the accidental president to take the country in their own in their own direction, um, and so I think that's one of the key distinctions between Ford and and the eight that I write about. Yeah. Okay, Jared Cohen, author of Accidental Presidents: Eight Men Who Changed America. This was a delightful conversation. Thank you very much for being with us on Detroit today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back with more Detroit Today. Stay where you are.